Welcome back, everybody, for the fourth and final week of My Pleasure. This series of messages in which we have been exploring the impact of quality service. We've been seeing how quality service changes the lives of the people who receive it, but we've also seen how it transforms our lives when we give it. You know, as the Bible says in Proverbs, it is in the refreshing of others that we find our refreshment. It is in the giving away cold cups of water to the thirsty that we find our deepest thirst quenched. And that's what we've been talking about. We've been looking at how do we serve others around us. And over this last month, We've looked at this topic of service from a lot of different angles. We began this journey a month ago with a conversation with our global peace workers serving in East Asia. And we, we heard from them how in spite of the fact that they're serving in a difficult place and through difficult circumstances, even as hard as that is, they find a deep joy, a deep sense of satisfaction in doing what they were created to do. We also discovered that serving God by serving others is not just for a select few, that we've all been shaped by God to serve. We have unique abilities and personalities and spiritual gifts and life experiences that God uses to, sh to shape us to serve in the places where he plants us. And then last week, we focused specifically on serving within the church, that as we serve one another within the family of faith, it not only makes the church healthier so that we can better help our community, but it also demonstrates who God is to the people around us. As Jesus said, the sign of being my follower, of being my disciple, is the way that you love one another. And the way that we love one another best is when we serve one another. Now today, I want to wrap things up by talking about serving outside the church. How do I serve well in my community, my neighborhood, my office, my school? How do we serve well the needs of the world around us? And so to help us do that, I want to look at some practical tips to serving my community well, and the good news about these tips is that they come from the greatest server ever, Jesus. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible or you haven't downloaded the Bible app, it's okay. Key verses are there on your printed program so everybody can follow along. And as those of you are turning to it to find Luke, let me give you the backstory on what's going on here. This event takes place in the latter part of Jesus' earthly ministry. You know, Jesus served publicly on this earth for about three and a half years. So about two and a half years into his ministry, Jesus has been traveling from village to village, town to town, serving people. He's been healing the sick. 
He's been sharing the hope of the good news. He's been bringing comfort in a listening ear and compassion to those who are struggling and broken. And so after doing this for about two and a half years, Jesus has gained a following. Not only the 12 apostles that we are familiar with, but about 70 plus other people who are following Jesus as well. And so one day, Jesus gathers all of these followers and says to them, all right, boys and girls, school is out. For two and a half years, you've watched me serve the people around me. You've watched me serve in these towns and villages. Now, I am sending you out to do the things that you have seen me do. And so just before Jesus sends these 72 folks out to serve in all of the villages and towns in the surrounding area, places that Jesus is going to be visiting in the future, he gives them a very specific and unique set of instructions of how to serve these communities well. And so as we unpack Those instructions, we see five keys to serving my community well. Number one, the first thing Jesus says I have to do to serve my community well is that I must work with others. I have to be willing to work with others because serving is not a solo sport. It's not something that you can do really well for a long period of time on your own. We serve best when we serve with partners. In fact, notice verse 1 there on your outline. He said that the Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in what? Right, he sent them out in pairs. Some translations say two by two. Now think about this for a minute. 72 people. Jesus sends them out in pairs. From an efficiency standpoint, that seems like a bad idea. Because instead of being able to serve 72 different villages, he's now reduced the number of villages to 36. He's cut his labor force in half. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus knew what would be lost in efficiency would be more than made up in effectiveness. See, Jesus understood this principle that had been articulated by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, thousands of years before this event. Notice what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 4.9. Two people can accomplish how much? What does it say? More than twice as much as one. Why? Because they get a better return for their labor. In other words, 36 pairs of servers can accomplish more than 72 individual servers trying to do it on their own. This principle of partnership is the basis for two strategic decisions that Cedar Creek Church has made about serving both locally and globally. The first strategic decision we made is that we would work and serve in teams. So locally, when we serve in our community, we do that through our home groups. 
Every home group is expected to have some sort of service project, some sort of thing, some need that we try to meet within our community. Now that doesn't mean if you're walking through the parking lot in Walmart and you see somebody in need that you say, no, Pastor Philip said I can't help you because I don't have a partner. No, I'm not saying that. Certainly there are times when you just see a need, meet a need all by yourself. But I'm talking about effective service. Long-term service is best done with others. We do the same thing globally. We don't pack up an individual, put them on a plane by themselves, and send them halfway around the world to serve on their own. All of our global outreach teams are just that. They are teams. There are groups of people who are going together to serve together. The other strategic decision we've made as a church is that when we serve, we look for people and organizations that we can partner with. When we see a need in our community, we're not so arrogant to think that we could just go out and reinvent the wheel and meet that need on our own. No, we look for people or organizations that are on the ground that are already doing good work in that specific area, and we just come alongside them. We partner with them because two are better than one because they can accomplish more than twice when we work together globally. We don't pack up teams and send them to some place where we have no connections on the ground, where we have no long-term people or organizations. We send teams to serve with people that are already there. It's all about partnerships because for us, better together is not just a cool slogan we put on our t-shirts. It is a core value of who we are as a church. So let me ask you, when it comes to serving in the community, who are you partnered with? Who are you working with? Who are you walking with? Who are you traveling with? Who are you serving with? Because Jesus says if you want to serve well, you got to start by working with others. Number two, the second thing that Jesus teaches us about serving our community well is that in order to do that, I must recognize my dependence on God. To recognize my dependence on God. See, it's not only in serving with others that I serve effectively, but it's with recognizing my dependence on God that I truly make an impact. The quality of the service you provide will not be driven by your talents, your skills, or your resources. Yes, God uses those things. But without God's power and without God's presence, we will never truly make a difference in the lives of people around us. Notice what Jesus says in verse 2. He says to these 72 people he's sending out in 36 groups, there are a great many people to harvest, but there are only a few workers. Paul's right there. Let me tell you something. That statement is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Church attendance in America is at an all-time low. There are less people consistently attending church than at any other point in our history. And the needs around us in our community 
has never been greater. <laughs> the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what do we do? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Jesus says, pray. So pray to God, who, by the way, owns the harvest, and he will send more workers to help gather his harvest. Listen, the needs of the people around you will always be more than the resources within you can meet. Some of you have had that experience. Maybe your home group, you've stepped out to serve and meet a need. And once you get in there and start meeting that need and the layers start to get peeled back, you all of a sudden see what you thought was this person's need is just a symptom of a deeper need and there's more going on. And you get out there, it's like working on an old house. The more you try to fix, the more you find wrong. And that's what it's like so much when we're out there serving. We end up over our heads. And in that moment, we have two choices. We can get frustrated and give up and say it's just too much. We can't accomplish anything with this. Or we can recognize our dependence on God and beg him to do what we cannot do on our See, that's the thing about prayer. Most of us think of prayer as a last resort, right? You get out there and you start serving, you get in over your head and you go, oh, we better stop and pray. And like, whoa, it's that bad? It's come to that? We have to pray? No, prayer was never meant to be a halftime strategy when you're down by two touchdowns. Prayer is always meant to be a part of our pregame preparation. We start with prayer. Jesus tells them to pray before he ever sends them out. And I love how practical Jesus is. Because he doesn't just tell them to depend on God. He kind of forces them to have to depend on God. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, and by the way, don't take any money with you. Think about that for a minute. These folks are about to travel for a day or two to get to the village. They're going to try to serve and meet needs within the village for a couple of weeks. And then they got to travel all the way back to debrief with Jesus when they're done. And Jesus says, don't take any money with you. That seems crazy. Why would Jesus do that? Because money's bad? No. Because he wants them to be completely dependent on God. See, we have a, a tendency as individuals, collectively as a church, and corporately as a nation, we have a tendency to think we can solve all the problems with money. Just throw a little money at it and that will solve the problem. Well, let me tell you something. If money could solve the issues in our culture today, they'd have been solved a long time ago. Because between our government and different nonprofit organizations, trillions of dollars have been thrown at the issues around us, and yet they get worse, not better. Why? Because money can't fix what only God can restore. We have to recognize. Now, look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't use money to meet needs. There are often needs when money and resources will help. What I'm saying is always serve with an overwhelming sense of dependence on God. Number three, the third thing Jesus says I have to do to serve my community well is I must be willing to travel light. I have to be willing to travel light. 
We can't serve well with a heavy load. It's hard to be the hands and feet of Jesus when our hands are full of excess baggage. Notice the second part of verse 4. Jesus says, not only don't take any money, but don't take a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals. Why? Because extra stuff just gets in the way. I'll never forget my first global outreach trip. It was about 12, 13 years ago. I had never been out of the country before, ever in my life. I'd barely been out of South Carolina in my life. And so I was traveling with a group of men from our church to Romania to teach our home group leaders training to the Romanian pastors there. Now, since I had never been before, had no idea what to expect, I chose to follow the philosophy, if I might need it, I better take it. So I bought the largest suitcase allowed by law. This thing was so big, you could have put two dead bodies in it. And I, lo- I didn't know what the weather was going to be like, so I packed cold weather gear and warm weather gear. I didn't know what the food was going to be like, so I loaded up on granola bars and peanut butter. I had this huge, massive suitcase. I also had the largest carry-on allowed stuff full And I had a backpack. You should have seen me going through the airport dragging all this stuff. I looked like a teenage girl headed for a two-day camp in the summer. Carrying all this stuff. Lugged it. So then when we got to Bucharest, the city in Romania, the apartment of the global peace workers that we were going to be staying in was on the third floor. And the elevators in Romania are the size of telephone booths. One person, if they're skinny, can get in there. So I'm lugging all this junk up three flights of stairs. We spend a week there teaching. Then I come back home. I'm lugging it through three different airports all the way back to the house. And when I am unpacking, I realize that 85% of the stuff that I took never came out of the suitcase. And I'm, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I learned a lesson. And from, from that point forward, whenever I travel globally, I always try to get by on one carry-on and one backpack. Travel light because it's so much easier and I'm much more effective at what I'm there to do. Some of us this morning, if we were honest, would have to recognize that we are going through life with too much baggage. We're carrying heavy loads that we were never meant to carry. But you need to understand, serving others well is not about what I have, it's about how I love. And you can't love well with excess baggage. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 1, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before. Circle that word endurance. You might remember last week I said that great service is about simple acts done consistently over the long haul? Well, the length of your ability to serve is directly proportional to the load you carry with you. 
So what's weighing you down right now? What's getting in the way of you serving our community well? I I think some of us would have to admit that it is our material possessions, the, the stuff that we have in our life. Now hear me, nothing wrong with material possessions, but we need to understand material possessions require maintenance. The more stuff you have, the more maintenance, the more time, the more energy it takes. I overheard a conversation last weekend. Two guys were talking, and one guy was asking the other guy about their lake house. They had a lake house, and he said, hey, did you guys get up to the lake house this summer? And he said, yeah, we got up there almost every weekend. And the other guy said, wow, that must have been fun. And the guy said, no, not really. Every time I was up there, I saw stuff that needed to be done, and I spent most of my weekends maintaining, cutting grass, fixing leaks, solving problems, working on things. It takes maintenance, and the more stuff you have, the more time and energy is spent on maintaining that stuff, the less time and energy you have to see and meet needs around you. For some of us, it's not our material possessions that are weighing us down. It's our emotional baggage. We're walking through life with so much undealt with and unhealed pain from our past that we are unable to feel and sense the pain of the people around us. Some of us walk through life with so much guilt and shame that we never believe God could possibly use us to serve others. Some of us carry a lot of bitterness and resentment And that anger is always just below the surface. And so we get out there to serve and the person we're trying to serve and help does something that triggers within us some of that old bitterness, that old resentment, and we do more harm than good. If we're going to serve well outside the walls of our church, we got to be willing to strip away anything and everything that gets in the way. Then number four, the fourth thing Jesus says I have to do to to serve well in my community is that I must stay focused. I got to stay focused on the task at hand. I got to stay on track. I got to avoid distractions. One of the most interesting things that Jesus says to these 72 people going out to serve is found at the very end of verse 4. Jesus says, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. That seems ridiculous. What does Jesus mean? When you're traveling on the road, you know, be rude, be unfriendly, look away if you see a hurting person living on the road. No, to understand what Jesus means by this, you really have to understand the cultural context. Because when I say greet to you, you immediately think of something that takes about 20 seconds to do, right? Like we do during the service, our holy commotion. You greet one another. It's very quick. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Glad you're here. Hope you have a great day. And then you move on. But in that culture, and still today in Eastern cultures, greeting someone is an event. It means inviting them into your home. It means providing a meal. It's three, four, five hours of time. And so what Jesus is saying is the mission is in the village, not out on the road. 
So stay focused to the task. Stay focused on what I've called you to do. See, I think one of the biggest barriers to us serving effectively in our communities is not that we don't have the heart, not that we don't care. It's just that we're so easily distracted. We are so, as a culture, obsessed with the next thing, the newest, the shiniest, the next big thing. We're so focused on, not, on getting to the next thing that we're unwilling to be faithful in the things that God has us in right now. You know, I was thinking about Alan and Sonny that we talked about earlier. And to know they've been there 12, going on 13 years. And that for 10 years, they served and served and served and saw almost no fruit. It's only been in the last year and a half where they've seen people finding the hope of the gospel, where people are being baptized, where little house churches are starting to grow. All of those years of serving faithfully. Imagine if they had been easily distracted. Imagine if they'd have just thrown in the towel and said, oh, let me just go on. Maybe there's something else. Maybe there's something better. What is distracting you? What, what is getting in the way? What's causing you to always look to the next thing instead of being faithful in the thing? I think for a lot of us, it's our self-centeredness. That's our natural sin nature to, to seek our own comfort, to want what we want. For some of us, we are distracted by the people around us. Either because we're going through life trying to please and keep them happy, which is an impossible task. Or our codependency is causing us to spend all our time and energy trying to manage somebody else's life. And it's not only not helping them, it's hurting them. And it's keeping us off task of doing what God has created us to do. Some of us are distracted by fear. To step out in faith and serve in our community is a very scary thing. And so we focus on the fear instead of the one who calls us to serve well with the people around us. And then finally, number five, and this is the most important tip that Jesus gives us. To serve my community well, I must be intentionally relational. Serving others well is not just about meeting the surface needs. It's about connecting at a level that allows the layers to be peeled back, discovering and dealing with the root cause of those issues. Notice what Jesus tells these teams in verse 7. When you get to the village, don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. And don't hesitate to accept hospitality. What's Jesus saying? Be intentional about connecting relationally with one family, one home. Now, you'd think if you wanted to serve the community and you're there for a couple of weeks, you should bounce around house to house, a couple of nights here, meet as many people as possible during that period of time. And yet Jesus says, anchor down in one home. Why? So that you can go deeper relationally. Because until you go deeper relationally, you'll never truly serve the deep needs of those around us. Which, by the way, that, that principle is also a basis for our local and global outreach. That we serve in order to connect relationally with other people. It's in connecting relationally with other people 
that we earn the right to be heard. That we are around them enough and often enough that they might just ask the reason for the hope that is within us. That's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, whatever a person is like, I try to find common ground with him so that he will let me tell him about Christ and let Christ save him. Now, now don't misunderstand. Neither Paul nor I are talking about a bait and switch. We're not talking about serving people pretending to care about them so that we can convert them to a religion and get a notch on our gospel soul-winning belt. No, we're talking about truly caring about people enough to connect with them to get below the surface to help find healing for what only Jesus can heal. What I'm talking about is building relational bridges with hurting people who are far from God so they can find their way back to Him. See, unfortunately, churches and we as Christ followers spend more time building walls than bridges. We spend more time and energy trying to define the differences between us and the big bad culture out there that we don't bother to engage the culture. Study after study has shown that when a person becomes a Christ follower and joins and commits to being a part of a church within seven years, their significant relationships with non-believers is down to zero in seven short years. Well, they may be out serving among the unsaved or, or helping people who are far from God, but there's no true connection. Do you have a significant relationship with a non-believer? Are you investing in that? If not, then, then where could you start that process? At work? I bet there are some folks there. At your kids' ball games? Sitting in the stands. I can't tell you how many relationships Terry and I established and built following our kids around in travel ball and local ball. We've met people that we still are in relationship with, and many of them have come to faith. Not because we're all that in a bag of chips, but simply because God has used those relationships. God has intentionally placed those non-believers around you. Because he wants to work through you to bring them hope. And so now, as we close this morning, as we close not only this message and this service, but as we close this series, I want to give every one of us at every one of our campuses just some time this morning to reflect and to respond to maybe what God has been speaking to you over these last several weeks. Because I hope... I hope and pray that you have not seen this series as just a ploy by me and the church leadership to get you to sign up to serve some position as a volunteer here at church. I hope you recognize this as your pastor and the leadership of this church desperately desiring that you experience the pleasure and the purpose and the deep fulfillment that comes from giving your life away in service to others. So would you pray? Just bow your heads, close your eyes. Just hang for a few more minutes. If you don't have to leave, please don't. All of our campuses. Father, we want to respond to you this morning. 
Would you speak again the truth that we've heard over these last several weeks? Would you help us hear your voice clearly amid the distractions of all the voices around us? Would you open our ears to hear you when so much in our culture, so much in our work, so many people and needs around us are crying out for a piece of us? God, would we hear clearly this morning what you want to say to us? And then as we hear your voice, would we respond as your people? Would we be willing to take that next step to be who you've shaped us to be and to serve how you've shaped us to serve? In Jesus' name, amen.